Hi friends, welcome to Bar of the Conference. I'm your host, Derek Scott III. We're at 11 episodes now, and for me, that is a huge milestone. I'm grateful for all of those who have joined me for interviews. And to all of you who have listened and shared episodes and commented over the last few weeks, it has been a true joy to work on this project. And I'm excited that at least for now, we are moving forward with more interviews. It is a bit of a gamble to do long form podcasts, but I chose this format because I've learned over the years that listening really requires time. I've enjoyed spending time listening to the stories and perspectives of our guests and not feeling like we needed to rush through it. So whether you have listened in one session or broken it up over a couple of days, thanks for hanging in there. Now on to today's episode. Israel Alvaron was born, baptized, raised, nurtured, educated, and ordained an elder in the Philippines Central Conference of the United Methodist Church. He lives here in the US now and currently serves as an organizer for Reconciling Ministries Network. He's also engaged in conversations with United Methodists all over the world about the future of the UMC, specifically related to regionalization. Friends, this episode is a masterclass on inclusion from a global perspective. I'm grateful that Izzy was willing to share his story, but also the context of the church in the Philippines and what it means to think about justice that isn't centered solely on US concerns. I learned a lot from this interview and I think you will as well. So you know what to do, grab that notebook, that choice beverage, and let's listen to this interview with Izzy Alvaron. Izzy, how are you doing today? I'm doing pretty well. Thank you so much for inviting me, Derek. This is oh. uh, a great opportunity. No, you know, it's great to have you, my friend. I'm just really, really grateful that you said yes, um, kind of short notice, like just a couple of days notice, but you jumped right in. And um, I've really just been grateful for your witness and ministry over many years. A lot of it that I've been watching from a bit of a distance, but just your hard work, both um, working in the United States, but also your connection uh, to the Philippines as well. And um, it really, it means a lot, but I, I I know of individuals who have personally benefited from your work and your advocacy. And so we're just really, really um, grateful to have you um, on Bar of the Conference. I'm wondering, because I actually don't know, how how did Izzy come to faith and where did that intersect with the United Methodism? Well, I believe in provenient grace. I believe in prevenient grace. Even before I was born, God has embraced me with so much grace. And uh, by God's grace, I was born in the United Methodist Church. In fact, I was born 
the same week that the uh, Uniting Conference was happening in Dallas in 1968. So you can guess my age. I was born <laughs> right in smack of that conference. My mom gave birth to me uh, in a United Methodist Hospital, which is very close to my home in uh, the district of Tondo in Manila. Um, it's the largest district of Manila. It's also the poorest district of Manila. But there's a, a Methodist hospital there. And I was born in that hospital. Um, the doctor that gave birth to me was a Methodist doctor. <laughs> so, and uh, I was born into a Methodist family, although my 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 dad was a convert and my mom uh, mom's family was Roman Catholic. Um, so I was literally born into this church. Um, I was baptized twice, which is probably some people don't have that experience. And it's worth it's worth explaining that because it really fits into my story. Um, my dad was a convert, and my mom's family is Roman Catholic. And the, the tradition is that you you are married in the tradition of your spouse of your wife. And they should have been married in a Catholic church. We're we're predominantly Roman Catholic. The Philippines is uh, a Roman Catholic country. We're the largest Roman Catholic country in, I'd say, in Asia. Um, and my dad didn't want to get married in a Roman Catholic church. You know, most most people who convert to a religion, they're very zealous about their own, their new religion. Mm -hmm. Even if he didn't really have any religion or anything prior to becoming United Methodist. Um, not only that, he was not just proud, he was worshiping. He was a member of the oldest Methodist church in the Philippines and the first Protestant church in the Philippines. When the Americans came in 1898, they brought their Protestant faith and established churches, and he was a member of the first one. So there's pride in that. And so he said, we're not getting married in a Catholic church. We're getting married in a Methodist church, my home church. And so they did, but there was a deal with my mom's family that the firstborn would have to be baptized Roman Catholic. And so that was me. So I was baptized in the Roman Catholic Church. It's a big basilica in Manila, which actually housed uh, just a little bit of, of trivia there, what we call the Black Nazarene. So we have, we have mm. an image or a, 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 of the Black Nazarene in that church. Mm. Um, I was baptized in that. That's a famous church, Chiapo, Roman Catholic Church. I was baptized there. I didn't know that um, until later on in life at every family gathering. And at that time, um, everybody knew that I wanted to be a pastor, which I decided to be in fifth grade, by the way, um, at a church camp. That's strong. So yeah. my Roman Catholic family were telling me that you're actually Roman Catholic. Every time we have family reunions, they happen to have a chance to whisper in my ear, you know, at the buffet table, you're actually Roman Catholic, you know. That. So I had to ask my father, what, what is happening here? And he showed me two baptismal certificates. One was Roman Catholic and one had the cross and flame. And I said, so how did this happen? Well, you know, the pastor that did our wedding knew the deal that you would have to be baptized Catholic. And so after you were born and baptized in the Roman Catholic Church, 
I secretly took you to a United Methodist Church, okay? And the pastor was the pastor that did our wedding. He got moved from my home church to that church. So I wasn't baptized in the church that I grew up in. I was baptized in that church south of Manila, you know, somewhere else that we didn't have any family or nobody nobody knew our family there. And I was baptized there. So I had two baptisms, right? But that baptism was very important later on because when I decided to be, I responded to the call to ministry in fifth grade at a church camp. It was also in the same year. I was about 10 years old. It was also in the same year that I realized that I am gay because I started having crushes on my male classmates. Hmm. I remember I went to a United Methodist grade school and high school. It was a private hmm. school. I was in kindergarten too. So I already knew there, there's something wrong here. This should not be happening. And the question I was asking myself and God was like, why would you call me to be part of, uh, to, to serve you in a church that would not want me for being gay. And now here, suddenly you're making me gay. What is wrong here? This is really mean. This is bad. And never heard back. No answer. <laughs> it seemed that God was silent until the mm. day that I was ordained. In fact, at my ordination, I was facing ordination with fear and trembling because I felt like I was lying to God at mm. that time. But, you know, my first church assignment as an ordained deacon because we had a two-step ordination back then. Mm -hmm. um, I was ordained deacon in 1992. Um, and my first church assignment was that very same church where I was baptized hmm. in the United Methodist Church, which wow. is not my home church. Nobody knew me there. And when, when, I, when I went to that church, the first Sunday that I preached, uh, I actually asked the church secretary, could you get the... Uh, the baptismal book for this year. And true enough, my name was in the registry. I took that up the pulpit, and the first words that came out of my mouth as an ordained uh, clergy in the United Methodist Church, even in the closet, I said, I was baptized in this church. I was baptized in this very sanctuary. Wow. You know, and at that time, it wasn't like the heavens open and I could see angels and trumpets blaring, but it was God in a in a small, still voice saying, I brought you back to the very place where I took you as a baby, where my church made promises to you to love you and care for you. Hmm. I walked with you full circle. I might have been silent. But here you are now, you're, you're my servant in this church. So if you're asking me, there is nothing wrong with you. Hmm. You are my child. Mm -hmm. And I have brought you back here full circle. And that started my journey to actually starting to accept who I wasn't. Remember, I was deep in the closet. Yeah, yeah. I was telling my high school classmates because we had, you know, it's a Christian high school. I was telling them I was a like I was a campus counselor, deep in the closet. I shunned my gay classmates. I mean, at least those that were flaming gay. I didn't <laughs> want to talk to them. I didn't want to be associated with them. I didn't want to be found out. And I'm like, I'm here. I'm going to be a pastor, you know. And I even, be, well, 
I was even reminded by one of them that back in the day, I even told them that they were going to hell for being gay. Imagine that. I was yeah. a bully. And um, and now they're saying, well, you're gayer than all of us combined. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> mm -hmm. and I tell them, like, I guess that is true. Like, you know, and I always make fun of when we say, oh, self-avowed practicing homosexual. I said, I'm not practicing anymore. I'm an expert. <laughs> not only that, I'm a professional homosexual, right? Wow. Yeah. So that's, yeah. That's how I got into this. Remember, I was born when the United Methodist Church was born. Yeah. I was baptized in a church that was in my home church, but God took me back to that church as an ordained clergy and said, nope, you're mine. There's nothing wrong with you. And that helped me, but I wasn't out. And I didn't really come out until 2015. Hmm. Hmm. Only in 2015 when I came out officially to the church. Hmm. So it was, it was, it was a long journey. Um, I, I thought I would never come out to the church. I would never come out to my parents. Even when I was working with RMN, I wasn't openly out to everybody, even if my bishops were appointing me to RMN, because I've always been an activist coming out of seminary in 92. Um, and of course it just follows that LGBTQ justice would be part of that, but I wasn't ready to come out to myself. So I never really thought that I would come out to the church, um, even if I was fully out to the movement. Um, but in, in 2015, I was invited to be part of the conversations that the Connectional Table was having on, on human sexuality. And so I said, if, if I was going, I would have to come out. And I asked Amy Valdez Barker, who's the executive director of the Connectional Table at that time, that if, you know, if I speak before the Connectional Table, I would have to come out. And I asked her, you know, would that not be against the funding ban, which does not allow the use of apportioned money for the promotion of homosexuality? Um, and she said, it's educational <laughs> because we're also going to hear from somebody who is conservative on this conversation who's a professor at um, Africa University and yes I was there I had to come out because I said well I don't want my bishops to know about this on YouTube or whatever platform they're gonna have it recorded and it's available actually still available if you if you look it up on YouTube my name in Mozambique that'll come out and I came out to my bishops and I told them I was raised in this church. I went to schools run by our denomination. I went to a very conservative Bible college. That's not. That's another thing that not a lot of people know, um, which was not run by United Methodists. My Bible college was just like Hogwarts for <laughs> for evangelical Filipinos. Uh, Three hundred people, you know, um, on campus. So, somebody's gonna want to know where this. Hogwarts for Christians. Oh yeah, <laughs> I, oh, it's, it's, uh, it, it is in the Philippines. Um, mm. I, I could I could mention that uh, in a little bit, but I said I went to all of these schools, mm. and um, and I was raised Methodist. There's you know, and and here I am. I'm I'm gay, and I'm coming out to the church at this event, and they were very gracious. I never received any 
you know, pushed back and they said, uh, this was in 2015, and they said that um, just let them know that we're still in conversation here in the Philippines and that this is happening. And, um, and so I did come out. And the following year, I came out to my parents mm-hmm. in 2016 mm-hmm. um, because I was part of organizing um, over 100 clergy to come out at the same time in 2016. I'm not sure if you, you were probably there. I, I was at 2016 and was aware of this happening, uh, mm. partly being a lay person, but also in the closet. Um, I kept my distance <laughs> from- you saw, it, you saw us there, yes. And so, yes. because I was gonna, you know, I was gonna be part of this group of everybody coming out at General Conference. I said, well, now at this point, I need to tell my parents. And they, they've mm-hmm. been very uh, gracious. I never thought that that would be the response, but I had my brother as my ally. And when I came out to them, um, my dad said, well, you're, you're our son and, and we love you. And that's the most important thing that I needed to hear. And I realized that not everybody has that privilege. And I think my mom has, my mom and dad has grown from there, from, from a lot of fear for me saying that, well, we don't want you defrocked. We don't do same-sex weddings, don't do this and that, and don't get married to a man and no boyfriends. And, you know, I think they've grown from there to like more acceptance um, because the conversations needed to happen. And I realized that if it was hard for me to accept myself, it must really be a journey for people who, who are not like me yeah, and I need so to true. be gracious to them in conversation, and that has always informed my work as an organizer, um, and and also generally as a queer person, that I you know I can feel hurt. I I need to acknowledge if there's harm, but then if I'm called to to usher in change in the church, uh, especially our current context, I I I need to be more open to God's grace and and channel that grace in conversations because mm. I had that experience with myself to begin with. Mm-hmm. I had that experience with uh, my bishops who continue appointing me to RMN, even as an out gay clergy person from a central conference that's very conservative. Mm. I'm still I'm still here. Um, so so that's like a, a, a long uh, road from uh, being born as a child and going through two baptisms to being called to ministry, to affirming myself and then landing uh, an awesome, awesome opportunity to work with Reconciling Ministries Network in 2013. Izzy, that's all beautiful. And so much of your story echoes with a lot of my story of feeling my call to follow Jesus and to be in ministry at a very young age, but also um, recognizing my own sexual identity quite early as well and and living in the closet, uh, you know, up until just a couple of years ago. Um, so, so much of your story resonates with me. But the one part that I'm I'm very interested in is that, you know, your the location of your formation is not the United States. It's so you've been yeah. here in the United States 20 years, but so much of who I think Izzy is, is actually 
rooted in the Philippines, specifically United Methodism in the Philippines. And so I'm wondering, you know, this is a conversation about, you know, what's happening at General Conference, which it, it's it's really kind of turned into a conversation of, of the stories that are on the floor more than just the legislation that's on the floor. Yes. Um, and everybody's coming to the table in different, from different places and, and I, and I think it's important for us to get a sense a little bit of the Filipino story and, and how that interacts with United Methodism. So I wonder if you could just give us a little bit of what, what is the unique gift of Filipino United Methodism? What should we as U.S. Uh, United Methodists know about our siblings um, in that part of the world? Um, what, what, yeah, just... Give me some some stuff there. Okay. Um, yes, I was born and raised in the Philippines, and I just moved to the U.S. in in two thousand three. And um, the only reason why I stayed longer than intended was uh, because I became political asylee in two thousand seven. I it, I was meant to go back home and teach in our mm -hmm. seminary. I was on faculty development, but then. Uh, our government started killing activists, including church people. Hmm. And with the support of my bishop, I did apply for a political asylum and, and got that in, in the 27, 2007. So I stayed longer than intended. So, but most of my years, of course, my formative years, my ordination, it's all in the Philippines. And um, my, I grew up in the oldest, Methodist church in the country um, and the first Protestant church in the country. I, I was very active in church. I, I, I saw what it's like to be a United Methodist church, United Methodist in the Philippines. We're a small group of over 230,000. A small group a of 230,000. Yes. Okay. Yes. Um, which is just like the membership of the Western jurisdiction. Like, you know, they're hmm. just bigger. Uh, Western jurisdiction, according to our 2016 census, are over 300,000 in this jurisdiction, hmm. right? Um, hmm. The Philippines has over 7,000 islands. So we're pretty spread out. <laughs> so yeah. but I, I was in the city. I grew up in Manila, the capital, and so we had we had big United Methodist churches there, but we had Methodist churches all across the country. And we're a small family. It's it's almost like a family church, but a, a you know, a big one. Uh, because if you get lost, and this has happened to me, if you're traveling to the provinces and you get lost or you need help or you know, you ask whoever is taking you uh to just could you drop me off at the nearest United Methodist Church, uh, because in the Philippines you'll get to. We always say you'll get to the place you're going on something that has wheels. It could be a trike, it could be a bicycle, <laughs> it could be a, a, a jeepney. Uh, there's a bus, but anyway, you're gonna get there, a pedicab, and they know mm -hmm. people. So I said, just take me to the nearest United Methodist Church, and usually they would know. And you would say it's the one with the cross and flame. Uh, you just tell them what the logo looks like and they know it. And you, when you get there, chances are the pastor lives on property right next. It's the old school parsonage and the yeah. pastor is right there. 
And all you need to do is tell them, I'm United Methodist. My pastor is so-and-so from this church, and this is my bishop. And they would welcome you and feed you and help you. And it's it's like that there. And we, we sort of know each other. Um, and there's, there's, you know, there's a lot of friendships formed because we have, you know, uh, youth gatherings around Christmas by districts. We call them Christmas Institutes. And so every district in the country um, has a Christmas Institute. And sometimes they do it by the whole annual conference. And they're there by the hundreds. All youth from all the churches are there. And some people compete by who gets to send the biggest delegation of young people. And I, I went to these Christmas institutes. And then the summertime, there's your own uh, local church camp where I, where I decided to become a clergy um, in fifth grade. We're a church planting conference, I would say. We, we pride ourselves in, in, in our local churches uh, competing again to give birth to as many daughter churches as we could. Um, that's why we're... We're, we're growing. I mean, it's it's um, it's not as big as the annual conferences here. I mean, we have uh, about 25 or 26 annual conferences right now in a central conference. And central conferences are conferences outside the United States. You can just see how U.S.-centric that sounds already because mm -hmm. the point of reference mm -hmm. is always the, the U.S. Um, but we're a minority church. And so, if you're in a minority, you're a minority Christian denomination in a predominantly Roman Catholic community, then there's more zeal in we need to have more United Methodists. Mm -hmm. So every church has a church plan, mm -hmm. um, and that's something I'm, I'm going to talk about this and also try back and forth and see what I discovered here for living in 20 years. Right. <clears throat> so one thing I discovered here is that it's you'd have to have the conference have somebody that does the church planting for you. Hmm. In the Philippines, the, the conference just manages the church planting that local churches do. It's natural. It's almost expected that the conversations at the local church level would be, well, where are we planting churches? <laughs> hmm. And how are we going to do it? And usually we do it... Um, well, as good Methodists, you know, it's always personal piety and compassion. And so there's always, uh, we, we would have medical clinics. We would have social justice work. Uh, we would have uh, charity work in different communities. And we always, we would adopt existing church plans and say, okay, well, the district has planted this church somewhere in the province, even if it's far away from them. And we would adopt it and they would do visits they would they would do worship services there. In fact, my ch first church assignment um, as a local pastor, right out of college, was the church plan of my home church in a mm. city that was about four hours by bus from my 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 hometown. Um, and I I was I was very young. I was probably 19, 20 years old straight out of college and I was a licensed local pastor and that was my first church assignment before seminary because back home that's another thing the difference right is that we we are sent to the mission field before seminary 
it's somewhat to test us. Like, let's see, they'll just throw you in the ocean and let's see if you can swim. It's so um, interesting. Yes. And then if you survive, we'll take you in. But then when you go to seminary, we don't have uh we don't have student debt because the conference pays for our MDIB. Ooh, let's be yes. careful about that going off on oh, the airways, man. Yes. Well, because mm. it's because our churches understand that we invest not just in church plants, we invest in our pastors. Because we plant churches, who's going to pastor them if we don't invest in our clergy? And so all our deaconesses um, and our pastors automatically receive uh, some form of scholarship that they don't have to worry about anything. If the conference sends you to seminary for school, we cover you. Hmm. We cover you. That's why, you know, most of us before seminary, we do, we are licensed and we're sent to uh, the mission field, call it the boonies, whatever. But that's where, oh my God, that was an experience. But I I experienced God's faithfulness in that work where, you know, um, it's hard. That's another thing. I think that's the difference, right? We have so much privilege in this country, at least from my experience. Um because of the poverty from of my home country. I didn't grow up poor. I think I was probably middle class by our standards. Um, but there's a lot of poverty in the country and not a lot of resources. Since I got mm -hmm. to experience that when I actually started ministry because I didn't have enough money. All the money was coming from the district mm -hmm. at that point in my home church. And when the money runs out, that's it. You know, you got to wait for the next time that, you know, uh, the, the the support comes along. And they usually give that at the district meetings of all the clergy. Hmm. But, you know, here, uh, there's a little bit more resource available to our pastors here. So that's something that I think not a lot of people, uh, or at least people don't realize that we don't have those resources. But God has resources. And so let me just share that when when I was pastoring a church there, my first church assignment, um, I didn't have money, but I needed to do the house visits that day, and I had to walk. I didn't have money for public transportation. I didn't have a car, but I would walk around visiting people. So you would count about kilometers or miles walking from one house member to the other um, in the heat, in the sun, right? And on the day that I knew. I didn't have any more food. I said, well, this is this is what God's going to take care of me. And so I just went out visiting. And let me tell you, um, the last stop, the last person I visited, she said, well, you know, my dad just visited me and and and, and brought a sack of rice. And and I already gave I already have two bags of rice ready for you, Pastor, just waiting for you to come and visit. Mm. And so I left that house. So good. Two, bags of rice and i was like praising god on the way to the parsonage um and when i got there i i i was thanking god and knelt in prayer i said thank god for this food i would not go hungry but at the back of my head i said well, is there anything that's going to go with rice <laughs> you know <laughs> well i could have salt or something <laughs> yeah um, no but then by that time and this is this is this is god's miracle here i believe in that somebody was knocking at my door another member of the church was coming by at the end of the day, and she had a basket of fish and tomatoes that will last me for a week. 
It was already cooked fish that will stay long because it was brined and all of that in vinegar. So I said, oh my God, I had rice, I had fish, I had tomatoes, I will survive. And at that point I said, you know what? If God calls you, and I'm telling everybody who's called by God, who's starting out in ministry, if God calls you, you will not be hungry. Mm. Even then I was gay and I knew I was like, okay. I said, this is great. This is really great. And I said, this is really true because I was deep in the closet. Now, God's not going to, God's going to take care of me. Even if I'm this like closeted little young gay clergy person out in the boonies. Um, mm. Another thing is that um, Methodism in the Philippines, we have issues that um, sometimes are not the issues in, in the U S church. And I think that's, um, uh, that's when intersectionality comes in, right? Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> very, very important. Um, and tell and us some of me. some of those. Let us tell us some of that, because um, I think yeah. it is important for us to really understand the way sometimes our not always intentional, but our U.S. dominance keeps us from hearing what's happening outside of our context. Let me just say there's, let me start off with um, my observation that there is a lot of similarity between the lives of, of Filipinos and Americans. When I talk about Americans, I'm talking about your everyday Americans. So if there's poverty in the Philippines, I've seen poverty here as well. Um because I also worked in the, you know, poor areas of San Francisco as a union organizer. Um, I've seen that. Um, I've also seen and experienced racism in this country. And in the Philippines, it's probably expressed through experiences of being colonized because they're interlinked. So there's that. But the narrative here in the U.S. is that it, there's so much resources here that you don't see um, the poverty uh, out, up front, uh, or you don't see this unless you really want to see it. It's almost the the thing is it's it's intentionally hidden by the system that you don't need to see the ugliness of of, of poverty, of racism, of violence mm -hmm. um, that's happening all around you because there's so many things to numb you, to numb you because you have resources, you have the money, you have the job. Unless you until you don't, right? But in the Philippines, it's it's it strikes you because it's it's the majority experience of most people. It's there. I mean, maybe there are some changes uh, today, but when I was there, it was it was really striking because I also lived in the poorest district of Manila, and being privileged as you know back home middle class, I went to school and uh, I had a full breakfast. I had lunch in the lunchbox. And um, but I would see children my age scavenging for food in the trash. Um, and I was asking, you know, people like, what are they doing? You know, why are they poor? And the answer to me was because they're they're lazy. There's mm -hmm. that, you know, sense that, oh, because you have privilege because you're not lazy. But I was thinking to myself, well, I didn't work for my lunch. And these kids mm -hmm. are working for their last night's dinner. And I came to school with a full full tummy of you know with breakfast, and they're like looking for last night's dinner. I said, "There's there's something wrong here." Um, that's also true here, but we don't get to see that. Hmm. Uh, 
because I think the system says, well, that's not the majority of people here until you see Katrina, until you you know you see what happened in Puerto Rico. Uh, and <laughs> if we open our eyes, the experience of, of poor people, of disenfranchised people, they're true across the world. They're interconnected. I see that here because I'm somewhat attuned to that because I grew up around it. And then being mindful of my own privilege, I always need to make that as a um, my own spiritual practice is to check my privilege every day because I could not, I should not lose sight of that. I'm a person of color in this country, and so I'm pretty much aware of the racism as well. So there's that there's that similarity, but back home, it's more heightened. So in the current conversation in the United Methodist Church, we talk about how do we do ministry with LGBTQ people? And that is the justice issue. And working with Reconciling Ministries Network, I I live, you know, in, in that world where we're struggling for this. And as mm -hmm. a gay United Methodist uh, person, I'm I'm here all the way, right? And this is the issue of the day, issue of the time. When that's transposed to how do we do outreach for this advocacy in conferences outside the US or outside our little bubble, what does that look like? Then I'm confronted where, with, well, right now we're facing human rights violations with people being killed on the streets because allegedly, this is in the Philippines recently, because they're supposedly drug users, so the police would just kill them. Or they're political opponents uh, of the government and they would just be disappeared you know, or killed. Right, um, it's just extrajudicial um, killings are happening, still happening, mm -hmm. um, or that they would say, "Well, right now, back in the heydays of, of the first start of the pandemic, we were all having vaccines, and the conversation back home were like, we don't have vaccines." You know, that, that just tells you that when when the whole world is experiencing something uh, at the same time, you can see the disparity. Because the you know the so-called first-world countries, they have the vaccine, they produced it, and then everybody else gets that later on. Uh, you know, hopefully we'll survive, and we did. But it just shows me that there are some issues that are forefront for us. There are justice, legitimate justice issues, but there are also justice issues in my home conference that are very important as well because queer people also experience them. And so that's when intersectionality comes in um, because I cannot separate uh, my own identity as a gay man from the fact that I'm also an immigrant, a person of color and from a central conference. And so when I transpose that to the experiences of, of my queer siblings back home, which I want to, to struggle and stand with them and, you know, but sometimes they're they're more concerned about well, yes, that's very important to us. But right now, some of us are activists and we're hiding because we could get killed at any time. You know? <laughs> so I don't know. I, I, At this point, yes, it would be nice if the church recognizes us. But one thing, we don't have gay marriage here. We're just surviving. We need food and the job. You know? And so I said, okay, I, I that's very important. And I would want to walk with people in the current moment of their fight for justice, because I think that's what needs to happen if we're fighting for full inclusion. 
then that also means full inclusion of the justice issues that our queer siblings are fighting for. And in the present moment, when they say full inclusion, I, I said, well, in the current moment, when we need to restructure the church, and that's how I always frame regionalization, I, and it's decolonizing our church structure, it's just the start. You know, I really believe that a decolonized church structure is when the American church does not have imperial outposts outside its borders. When well, that's all sustainable where we are yeah. and living our reality. That's when connection really happens. Um, but in the present moment, let me just say that inclusion, you know, the first step to inclusion is to decolonize our church, our minds, our bodies. First step. Let's take a quick break. This is so helpful. So, so helpful in just, at least for me, like reminding me that um, even the work of justice is contextual. Um, yes. And even, you know, those of us who are committed to inclusion, committed to decolonization, that means specific things in different places. There's intersections, and that's where intersectionality comes in. Mm -hmm. But it's in intersectionality that we've got to then recognize the ways that we're working in coalition with each other to move the whole church forward. Um, so I'm going to move us along. Um, right. Though we could, I mean, gosh, masterclass on understanding the work of justice globally in this space right now, Izzy, and thank you. I want to move us along to a particular point in United Methodism General Conference 2019, um, which I could pick many different kind of points in our history. G General Conference 2019, that special session where the traditional plan passed was a pivotal moment. Mm -hmm. we, we know for the United States, but I, I actually think that there was something about that special session that was even critical for the rest of United Methodism globally. And so I'm just curious, and I'd love for you to just respond sort of when, um, I know you were in the room um, mm -hmm. and I was in the room as well. We had friends and colleagues in the room. What, what was your sort of takeaway response um, when the traditional plan passed as a, as a gay man, as an elder, and, and, and definitely from sort of that Western jurisdiction point of view, but even to the degree that you can speak from the Filipino United Methodist point of view, what, what was kind of happening? What were the messages and the, 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 the feelings you were hearing and getting, um, in response to the traditional plan passing? Well, the traditional plan passing, I think, was instigated even prior to 2019, because in 2016, 
um, we had queer clergy coming out and mass like over a hundred mm -hmm. yeah. and more after that. Mm -hmm. Two months after that general conference, Bishop Karen was elected. Yeah. And I think um, both instances we were all now out publicly was somewhat poking the church's eye, that eye of injustice and taunting that eye of injustice. And so 2019 was uh, the oppressive system saying, well, we got to do something about this, right? And even if we had conversations uh, to put together the one church plan um, of which I was part of, um, I was also helping lead the strategy team for the Queer Clergy Caucus, uh, which put forward the simple plan my heart my heart was definitely there and my only question for my queer clergy siblings in organizing i said well <clears throat> i'm an organizer so i need to ask the question where am i going to get the votes for this and i'm working with central conference folks i had a couple of two other organizers a fellow united methodists from africa that was reaching out to African United Methodists, and I was helping reach out to Filipino United Methodists uh, to support a compromise legislation, which is the One Church Plan, which does not really have any effects on central conferences. The effect of that for would be for the American Church, and we we lobbied. We, our bishops were supportive in the Philippines. I really was thankful to probably half of our fifty something delegation confirmed their support for the one church plan um uh, but you know promises were made um on and on from some of our central conferences and you already know what happened that this all failed by 54 votes yeah yeah right and there's a lot of finger pointing that was happening um i i friendships soured um uh, accusations of you know you sold out on us you threw queer people under the bus and that was a painful experience personally also professionally as an organizer um and it was a dark dark night <laughs> i think uh or i'd say that was like a, a very uh, sad evening um when that happened um, I didn't want to see other Central Conference people that evening. And uh, mm -hmm. Jan Lawrence said, well, you need to be at this hotel because the Western jurisdiction folks are having their healing meeting at one of their rooms. I said, but that's where all the Central Conference people are. I don't want to see my bishops. I don't want to see anyone from the Philippines or Africa. Mm. It was that sad. And mm. that's when I also realized uh, on hindsight, looking back, that this system of injustice wants to separate us from each other. Oh, yeah. This is a wedge that is being created. And it's actually true. This whole thing of using LGBTQ people uh, as a narrative to divide the church, we're a wedge. We're just being used as a wedge. And I said, I would not want that to happen. That's why I really want more conversation to happen. So that, that traditional plan passing by, by 54 votes... It was a sad day, 
but I also saw that as, you know, there's now critical mass to change this. And I, at that point, I didn't see the wave of, 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 of annual conferences in the U.S. voting in new, new people. But let me, let me share that my spiritual practice for uh, 2019 was, because I knew I was entering into like spiritual battle, um, <clears throat> that every morning before I left my hotel room, I had this cup of water that I would pray over and bless and then remember my own baptism. Mm. Mm. Remember my own baptism. Um, because I said, I need to go out there and say, I'm a child of God. It's sort of like a mantra, I'm a child of God, because whenever there's a vote about my being a child of God, that is spiritual violence that nobody should hear. And mm. you're not going to meet Jesus Christ on the floor of general conference if, if you're going there to be to be inspired, you know, because they're legislating things and grace is never legislated. It is freely given by God. And so I had to affirm myself. And on that day, I just didn't know if that's going to work because I started crying in the hallways. Hmm. Again, again, God reminded me at that time that even with my tears, and that's what I did. I remembered my baptism with my tears. And that was the hardest thing to do. And I could see queer people crying. I could see I could see all the pain, all the rejection, and after the, all the hard work done. But that was just the start. I knew coming out of that experience, there's something that's going to happen. I still didn't know at that point. And then June happened, and I was at um, I was at the uh, annual conference of Illinois Great Rivers where a mm. lot of conservatives are members of, right? Yeah, yeah. And I could see the organizing that was happening there. They were turning out retired clergy <laughs> to mm. vote. Yeah. And they swung the balance of their delegation. And that was replicated across the U.S. connection. Yeah. And it's a story to tell. And that, I think... Uh, uh, many people say the United Methodist Spring. <laughs> it, it was because I, I think the the part of the church that has always been on on the sidelines or just watching on the fence, you know, suddenly just woke up. And at RMN, we were flooded with phone calls, emails saying, how do we become a reconciling church? Where do I sign up to be a reconciling United Methodist? What do we do now? We had thousands, I think over 3,000 new Reconciling United Methodists just that year. Mm. And over two-thirds of that were from the southern jurisdictions. I was like, hallelujah. <laughs> you know, hallelujah. I mean, people in the West were like, yeah, we got this already. We have this. But I said, look at your siblings to the South. Everybody is in the conservative areas. They're all waking up. And I said, this is, I saw that as God saying, you know what? You want to you wanna go, you want to go to Easter? We got to go through Lent and the church mm. has to die. And if the church needs to die and be different, that's fine. I tell people we should not be afraid of the church dying in its whatever form it is right now because we're people of the resurrection. God will give birth and resurrect its own church. This is God's church. And wow. if this is the way for us to die um, 
I don't know what structure the church will take in the future, mm-hmm. but you know, I, I've heard it said before that we know how this story ends, mm-hmm. right? And so, 2019 was sort of that Lent to me. It was, it was, it was betrayal, <laughs> mm-hmm. and it was like Monday Thursday. There was like weeping and gnashing of teeth and crying and the church should die and people got tired. Friendships were broken. Um, Accusations were thrown all around. Um, But then we we went from there to new organizing and spring and, you know, life coming back. And it's a cycle, it seems to us, uh, in in this work of organizing. And now we're we're heading into 2024, but we had 2022 first, right? We had yeah. jurisdictions. I was uh, I was at North Central Jurisdiction. I cover two jurisdictions. Uh, I'm based in the West, but I also cover work in North Central. And so I was in Fort Wayne. And I could see from where I was then, well, rejoicing with the, you know, the votes uh, that was happening. All of the bishops were being elected, were fully supportive of of LGBTQ people. I saw all the resolutions that passed. And of course, that was strategic that all of these resolutions passed by uh, queer delegates uh, on leading with integrity and uh, regionalization were passed uh, in all jurisdictions. Amazing, even if there were some questions raised before uh, judicial council, whatever. Um, But the, the, the point is the church at least in this context in the United States, has spoken and sent a message to the rest of our siblings around the world that, you know, this is where we hope we would go together. And I, my only hope, though, there is that while we're, we're somewhat solid here, we're still in a conversation with people around the world. Uh, and I, I want to – you won't be the – Hopefully, you will not be the only person of Filipino descent that I have on this podcast, sure. um, and so I, 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 I hope to can you know have that conversation with more. But I'm curious, can you speak to what all of what you just talked about from the special session all the way through to that last set of jurisdictional conferences? What what were our Filipino uh, siblings? what was their sort of response in watching all of this happen here and maybe even what was possibly happening there too? Well, a majority of the church in the Philippines um, is for lack of a better term, conservative on, on, on how we are to be in ministry with LGBTQ people. And I'm the only one who is an out gay United Methodist clergy from a central conference that I know of. And so I know for a fact that in the Philippines, the the response at that time um, uh, was that, well, looks like this is it. This is where the church is going and let's just, you know, and go our own way. There's sadness amongst those uh, whom we call progressives. The bishops were saddened because, of course, this is something that was supposed to protect the church is an institution, and some of the bishops, of course, hold the, that, that uh, uh, responsibility to keep the institution together. 
um, there was sadness and frustration from the point of view of, of progressives from the Philippines. But then the majority of the church is conservative. And so the traditional plan just fits them perfectly. And there is no problem to that. Mm -hmm. But moving from there to where we are right now, um, the, um, the election of Bishop Cedric um, and me uh, continuing to come out as a gay man and, uh, and being public about it um, and the birth of the Global Methodist Church, which is now being used also uh, get some of our churches in the Philippines to lead, even if there's no way for them to use any current disaffiliation procedures as a central conference. So there are some calls for autonomy for the Philippine church. And, and you know, uh, autonomy has always been a, a, an advocacy of, of, of Filipinos and United Methodists in the Philippines. It, it just didn't succeed in the past for some technical reasons, like, you know, nobody counted the votes that had uh, taken by an annual conference. We would have been autonomous. Mm -hmm. way but that was mm -hmm. for purposes not to exclude people. Autonomy then was for us to be self-sustaining, right? Church, right. right, and be and be at par with the rest of the connection in terms of how we do our ministry and our witness, but always in fellowship and affiliation with the larger church. But now autonomy is being hijacked and used um, to exclude people uh, because some of the folks there said, "Well, we don't want to be part of a church." that does things like this, that is not part of our values. And so the response from the, the, from 2019 affirming, uh, uh, affirming the traditional plan or what is already in the Book of Discipline, and now there's they see there's an uprising uh, in the United States, um, and that's what they see. Like, there's a lot of disobedience to the Book of Discipline, which is like, like we, we've said it's biblical obedience. Um, and so, and then the hype around disaffiliation in the U.S. and the Global Methodist Church. In fact, they established a provisional annual conference by the Global Methodist Church last year um, on the eve of our central conference gathering where we elected three new bishops. Um, they're creating trouble there, uh, exporting the narrative, the vitriol that they have in the United States and bring it over to the Philippines. We, we didn't have any names, traditionalist, centrist, progressive. We were just United Methodists in the Philippines. We would fight and debate at annual conference. And now we have these labels being mm. brought to our shores. I mean, talk about colonizing us again um, mm. as United Methodists. And I was like, oh, my God. And this is also true here. That's what happened here. We are being colonized by these narratives, um, even in this country. Um, and, and we're experiencing that. And imagine what that does to other places that are smaller United Methodist churches where family uh, kind of sort of, of, of structure and suddenly you're not invited to dinner because you're a traditionalist or you're, you know, you're a progressive. And so that is happening right now. What is happening here is happening there, but there's no way for anybody to disaffiliate. So people are just like taking property I can tell you there's one church there uh, right now where the whole church council voted to leave in the church. 
and they they maybe they're 90 percent of them supposedly want to leave the united methodist church i don't know what kind of misinformation is happening there but they're taking church property on this they said they own it not respecting the trust clause they changed the sign from you know united methodist church to the methodist church uh with the name of their church um and the united methodists who wanted to stay had to elect their own new church council right and they had to um, open their own bank account. Imagine that. But they're still worshiping in the same sanctuary on a Sunday with more than half of them saying they've seceded, but still using the United Methodist hymnal, but changing the signs outside. And the pastor is still United Methodist, but they use somebody who's a retired uh, schismatic former district superintendent to lead their Bible studies. But you know what? The new church council, the secretary, and the treasurer are queer. Mm. Young people. <laughs> so I said, you know what? Fine. You know, um, that's why I'm telling people, if the church needs to die, God will give birth to God's church. New. Mm. So that's what's that's what's happening in the Philippines right now. Um, yeah. there's, there's resistance. People are afraid that there would be change in the book of discipline. At least that's the narrative that's being proffered to people. But many United Methodists want to stay. We're really a Big Ten church. Yeah. I grew up with that with that um, notion that oh, everybody is welcome in this church. I mean, it's an open table. Everybody's welcome here. But it's exporting the narrative uh, that queer people are evil you know it's hard and when you know that there are people leading um these divisions in the philippines who are church leaders who have queer children it pains me because that's spiritual violence to their kids you know um but then god god is calling people including queer people to be part of this new church. I said, okay, I, this this I can celebrate. And so my work through RMN is to walk with them and to, to keep walking with my bishops. And I, my bishops before and my current bishop now, they've asked me like, why are you not transferring your membership? You've been in the US, you can transfer your membership. We will support that, you know, um, you're at risk here. I said, they can file charges against me. That's fine. They will have a national conversation. You have a queer clergy being tried for being queer. Let's see what happens. But I said, well, I want to hold myself accountable to you and you to me. That's what's like an accountability. I cannot be held accountable from afar. So I want to do this work um, as a member of my central conference, and I will hold you accountable to me, your conference, my conference accountable to me. But I also, I told my bishop before, I said, you know, the best witness would be for you to say that you're a bishop of a very conservative central conference, but you have a queer clergy serving with you in this capacity, which which annoys a lot of people saying, why is this guy, is he still a pastor? You know, why is he mm. still doing this? Even if he's saying that he's, you know, he's a professional homosexual, I said, you know what? I'm really very happy that we have queer kids there who 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 see me as their pastor, even from afar. Yeah. But they they would 
text me or call me with things that they would not talk to their their pastor about because they know that I would be the one to understand them. And the last time I was there in November, you know, I said, we're going to have a gathering. And we did have over 30. First time we had a reception, an RMN reception for 30 queer folks who are United mm -hmm. Methodists um, that mm -hmm. we, we met. It was, a, it was a big party. When I go home in May for my annual conference, we're going to have one because all the allies were saying, when are we going to have ours? <laughs> my, my bishop then even said, can I come to this party? I said, no, these are only for queer folks. It's, it's closed door. Um, and now we're going to have one for allies in, 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 in May, this May. So even mm. if there is division and pain, uh, I cannot get sidetracked from the hope that God is going to give birth to something new. And that is not going to happen magically. I need to work and, 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 and I need to uh, uh, work with my siblings there who are already struggling. Um, and, and, and just embrace the fact that there's going to be something new. Mm. There's a lot of fear. <laughs> mm -hmm. But I always want to be hopeful. I, I really yeah. do. And I saw that in, I saw that glimpses after 2019. I saw that in 2022 when the church in the U.S. is somewhat coming together. And I'm hoping that sends a message to everybody else. And let me tell you right now, um, in my work around um, uh, regionalization. Yeah, let's go. Let's go there. Let's go to, I want to hear some of that that work around regionalization and, and how that may be a part of sort of this wave of the new thing, but also the hope for our future and the way that we are connected to each other across the globe. Yes, I, I, I believe that um, full inclusion begins with decolonizing church structure. I really believe that for a church that is global uh, and worldwide and um, the politics of, of, of having inequity between uh, what happens at General Conference in, in the U.S. and also uh, what happens in our central conferences. Because, you know, we go to General Conference, we talk about pensions when that is not even an issue that folks in central conferences have to deal with because we don't have the same pension plans that the U.S. has, right? Uh, we do have some. Uh, they're measly. I mean, I don't have a pension plan here uh, because I'm not a clergy here. Um, and so there needs to be more parity and equity in how we do church. And after 2019, um, there were calls for the church to dissolve or, to, you, you know, divide the church. And central conferences... Um, at least those that I've been working with from the African continent and the Philippines said, well, we can do better than that. If the Connectional Tables proposal to create the U.S. Regional Conference was supported and is supported by the Central Conference College of Bishops, why don't we expand that concept of the U.S. as a regional conference to all of our central conferences becoming regions like the U.S. region? Because... The U.S. as a region is not regionalization because that's just one region. Okay, so when you talk about regionalization as a restructure of the church, then you're talking about all the regions around the world having the same um, legislative authority uh, to contextualize ministry practice 
uh, and policies, right, to their their unique missional contexts. And currently, the U.S. does not have that because we don't have a U.S. regional conference, and that needs to happen. And central conferences' power to actually adopt uh, policies are limited to administrative property policies and not really missional policies around ordination um, um, and other ways of actually being in ministry with people around you. So that's not there. So therefore, that, that that's that. Therefore, we needed to have something that was wider uh, in scope and and uh, more powers given to the regions. That's that's when the Christmas Covenant came about, um, and it was born around Christmas time of 2019. So that's one thing to celebrate about what happened in 2019. And so we've yeah. been doing this work on regionalization for a couple of years now, and in, in in 2022, that's when all jurisdictions supported regionalization. That was just amazing that that happened. And I think this is the next step um, going into 2024 is when we have the church ready and educated about the importance of of this first step of decolonizing our church structure. I'm not saying that regionalization is, is the solution to decolonize. It's just a first audacious step um, because I think this will give us um, – room for more conversation room for more conversation now and people who probably listen to you are probably a little bit more open to lgbtq matters and so i i do want to address that question that's always been asked well why would you support a proposal that would allow other regions of the church to maintain policies that are not inclusive even if it it even if the unintended consequence of regionalization is to allow parts of the church that are ready to be more embracing to do that, right? Because that's that's what regionalization is. It allows regions of the church to be in ministry with people in their regions and preach the gospel that actually um, embraces more people with the love of God through Jesus Christ. And how does that happen? You have to contextualize it, right? And some people see that as compromise, but some people see that also in the way that, well, that means other people don't get that because it's not across the board. And some people that see that as incremental justice. And and I, I tell people, this is, again, this is where intersectionality comes in. I would love to have my central conference be part of a United Methodist Church, e- even if a part of it... Um, remains uh, or maintains our current policies around LGBTQ folks, but a part of it who's in the same journey has moved on to some form of inclusion because the conversation then continues. The conversation continues in the context of things that we actually do well together. Mission, justice, compassion Mm -hmm. and when we do this as united methodists across the world together we do well together and i tell people that i don't have the power to change people's hearts and minds in my context in the philippines um, and in conversations with my african siblings who some of them are not uh, at this of the same mind with what where the U.S. is going, um, I don't have that power. The power to change people's hearts and minds is the work of the Holy Spirit. 
And if I take that off the table, I feel relieved because that's not my job. Nobody has that superpower. But my work, and I speak for myself, is to be present, to continue to be in conversation. Because it is in these spaces of conversation that allows the Holy Spirit to do her magic of changing mm. people's hearts and minds. Imagine this, that we are in a post-2024 general conference. We have ratified regionalization. There is respect for each other's contexts. And you have a, a, a reconciling church that has a gay pastor from the U.S. with a missional relationship with one church in the Philippines, and they're building a new church somewhere out in the provinces together. And there's a gay couple from this church going to the Philippines, building that church with other Filipinos. And I have here a family, probably conservative, hosting you for dinner. And they're saying, there's a gay couple building our church and we're hosting them for dinner. This is gonna be an awkward conversation. But yet that, at the table is where the Holy Spirit will work. Yes. Because now you're saying, I don't believe that. Well, you don't have gay marriage in the Philippines. It's not legal. But here you have a mission partner, right? That's mm. helping you and working alongside you. Imagine the conversation that happens, even if it's awkward. Because now you're seeing them face to face, not as a gay couple, you're seeing them as part of a mission team building with you a new church in your community. And you see past the difference. I'm here for the long haul. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm here for the long I'm here for that. Imagine then if we don't have that and my central conference leaves, it would take more than one generation for my queer siblings back home to even have a chance for anything close to what we have here and the privilege I have here because the conversations and the dialogue stop because the connection has ended, at least organically as one church. So am I throwing them under the bus? Uh, that's not for me to decide, but I believe that something that for us takes years is a blink in the eye of God. We see just at the horizon, but I believe that beyond the horizon, the Spirit sees that, and we're just being invited to go up and see further down the road. Um, that's where I'm coming from as a Central Conference person. That's, that's kind of hard because I come from here. Everything is instant, instant gratification. We need to get this. We need to get that. That's a lot of privilege. <laughs> where we don't have that privilege where I come from. And so I always carry that with me here and name it. I would want them to experience what I have experienced here, but that will take a lot of work. A lot of conversation, yeah. a lot of praying together, you know, and, and loving yeah. each other. So I'm always hopeful, you know. Um, I believe that our journey ends with justice and wholeness. That's where we're going to be at. I always cling to that hope, um, and even for the UMC, um, for the church. 
uh, well, my vision is in Isaiah, uh, I think it's 42, 19, that God is saying that I'm creating a new thing. Do you not perceive it? Right. right. Do you not perceive it? Um, it's, it's, it's like we're on a journey to perfection. That's the, that's the, mm-hmm. they're like, we're on a journey yeah. to perfection. And, and, um, that perfection in love is, it starts now. It's, uh, it's always a journey. It's, it's, it doesn't end somewhere, right? It's the building of God's kingdom and building beloved community um, is a process, right? But you already experienced that. I already experienced that in the struggle itself. Sometimes I'm always tempted to say, I hope I get to see the fruits of my labor as if like it's going to happen in the future. That's always what people say. But I think the kingdom of God is both here and not yet. Yeah. It's, 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 it's erupting, but yet it's still coming. That's why I think it's very queer to say it that way, because it shifts, it's fluid. It's just, too queer to hold on to one position, right? <laughs> yeah. And there's so many liminal things that happens in between and so many colors to combine. But really, even in our present struggle, God is already there. Mm-hmm. The kingdom is already there. When we're recruiting, when we're organizing, when we're arguing, when we're in dialogue, when we're in consensus, we're in we're prayer together, when we're in pain, and when we're celebrating, that's part of building the kingdom, and that's part of the struggle. But in that struggle, in that act of building, the kingdom of God is already there. And so if I see it that way, I'm not going to lose hope and say, I hope I'm still alive when this happens, because I know it's going to happen. Yeah. I know it's going to happen. I think that's the hope, because God is saying, do you not perceive it? I'm already building something new. And when God says that in that language, I'm just building something new. It almost sounds like it's not there yet, but God is already saying, but can you not perceive it already right now? See it when it's coming. Can't you see? Because we always want something big and, and, you know, it's like a big bang. But then sometimes, and we already know this in scripture, God speaks in, in, in the still small voice of a stream or in whispers, or even in silence. It's just hard. And it takes a lot of, I think, spiritual practice to discern that. And that is what God is saying. Can you not perceive that? And I want I want to be hopeful. I know there's a lot of fear out there. The conversations I'm seeing, the group chats from back home, a lot of panic. Uh, I could say publicly now that one of our retired bishops has decided to leave the United Methodist Church. Bishop Pete Torrio just made an announcement this week. Mm. There's a lot of fear of where he's going, who he's taking with him. I've heard of a few of our, uh, my most more traditional siblings, our uh, clergy are leaving the church in the Philippines. I don't know where they're going. I, I tell people publicly, I respect their views. Mm. Um, I just hope that they don't burn the whole house down on their way out. Yeah. Yeah. Out of this fear, out of the uncertainty, I hope that we will remain hopeful because this is God's church and God will take care of God's church, whatever form it takes. Our role is to be present. 
our role is to be in conversation and, and be there for each other. And even in that act, God's kingdom is born in the here and now, in the here and now. Oh, my goodness. Um, gosh, Izzy, I can't even thank you. I can't put it into words how grateful I am for this conversation and all of the insight and wisdom that you've shared. Um, thank you for your witness. Thank you for your work. Thank you for your willingness to try to hold intention to context, at least, if not multiple <laughs> context. Um, it, it, um, it's inspiring. It is hopeful. And, and you um, know, that's, that's the gift of being queer. Yes, right. Always hold things in, in intention, always yeah. intention. And I always tell people that it's it's my being queer that is actually my own salvation. Mm. Yeah, that's what's keeping me sane. When my being queer is being used as a weapon to harm other people and harm myself and harm the church, I have to reclaim that and say, no, 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 no. My being queer is what's keeping me sane because I have been gifted with the experience of oppression that I am now um, evolved to face the challenges that you want to throw at me because mm -hmm. um, I knew what it was like to hide in the closet. I knew what it was like to, to say things that maybe uh, would sound different to other people, but others would be, you know, healing. I mean, it's my being queer is a gift and I'm hoping that my queer siblings out there would, would affirm that we're, we're ready I think we're called to this moment because we're queer and we have the gifts and graces to be there, to hold intention, to live in all these liminal spaces because we can and we have and we will. What a word. Thank you so much. Really appreciate you. You're most welcome. And I'm, I'm very glad to be in this conversation and this conversation still continues. Amen. Big and small spaces and needs to continue. Yes, well. We hope you enjoyed the episode. Bar of the Conference is produced by the team at Wesley's Revival, a ministry of Studio Wesley. Subscribe to this show on Apple, Spotify, Amazon, or Google platforms so you don't miss a single episode. Thanks for joining us, and see you next time.